Morning. Glad you're here. We we uh, reporting a very successful couples retreat that went on at Pickwick. They had about 42 couples. And if you went, I know you had a great time. I heard it was great. That was a plus 50 crowd or 50 plus. But uh, they, I know that was, and maybe they'll do that again, but that was supposedly a great time. Uh, on the back table, Mitch Lewis has set up tickets for the World Mission Conference, which is going to be held here next weekend, uh, 26th, 27th, and 28th. So there are tickets back there for the kids' programs as well as for uh, different programs going on throughout the weekend, and there's a schedule. So check that out before you leave. Lon's going to come up before we sing and talk about the men's retreat that's coming up in April. Just uh, wanted to invite each and every one of you really quickly to uh, come to the retreat, which is April the 16th through the 18th at Pickwick. A lot of you have been before and you kind of know the drill, but I just wanted to real quickly mention sort of how the weekend works so that if you hadn't been before, you kind of know what to expect. But basically, everybody's on their own to drive up Friday after work. Hopefully, you ride with a friend and meet us at the lodge, the State Park Lodge at Pickwick, um, kind of about 7 o'clock, where we have our speaker, Brian Loritz, starts um, basically the weekend and kicks it off. And he'll teach and preach and speak to us Friday night and then also Saturday morning. Uh, and then we'll have a lunch. And then the, the afternoon is free on Saturday where... We coordinate a lot of different fun activities, anything from going to Shiloh to um, taking a nap, guys, which is becoming more and more popular every year, to uh, playing golf or tennis or going on boat rides. There's a lot to do. It's just sort of a free afternoon, great time. We'll meet again Saturday night, uh, spend the night again, and then have a worship service Sunday morning and come home. And generally, we've been home by about 12 or 1 o'clock on Sundays. So your family doesn't miss you too much, but you get a great break. And it's a great time. I think there have been some enormous friendships made during this weekend in the past. And our speaker this year, Brian, is someone who, if you've heard him speak to us here at Amen or know anything about him, he is fabulous. And I know he's excited. We're going to hear from him, you know, as we build up to the retreat. But I really hope you'll put it on your calendar because it's a great weekend. Uh, We'll have the costs and the registration information next week. We're going to make it as easy as we can to register online, and we'll start getting all that information to you next week. But I hope you'll really think about it and think about that weekend as, a, as something you can put on your calendar now. Thanks. Robert, you want to come lead us in a song? Thanks, Lon. Gentlemen, let's stand as we sing about the peace of Christ with, as we sing Like a River Glorious. Yeah, I don't think Michael's here. We're going uh, a cappella today. Oh. So, uh, not going anywhere for a while? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jesus loves me. It looks like we may be, we have some movement. Okay, here we go. It would have been a solo. Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace over all victorious in its bright increase. Perfect yet it floweth fuller every day. Perfect 
yet it groweth deeper all the way. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised perfect peace and rest. Hidden in the hollow of his blessed hand, never foe can follow, never traitor stand. Not a surge of worry, not a shade of care, not a blast of hurry, Touch the spirit there. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed. Finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. Every joy or trial falleth from above. Traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. We may trust Him fully, all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly, find Him wholly true. Stayed upon Jehovah, Hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. Don Riley is going to come lead us in prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for being our creator, our sovereign Lord, our redeemer. Lord, as we come through this, these 40 days of Lenten season, 40 days leading up to Easter, we consider and contemplate and examine our hearts. And we may sing about being stayed upon Jehovah, but most of us don't have a clue what that means. And if we're really honest about it, our, our hearts are not at peace. We, we live by explanations instead of your promises. We want everything revealed. We want it laid out. We want to know instead of trusting you. So, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for um, we, like Habakkuk, ask, how long? How long? And you ask that throughout the Old and New Testament of us. How long will I have to deal with a faithless and... Uh, perverse generation. So, Lord, we, we thank you that at the cross you dealt with our sins, past, present, and future. Thank you that at the cross all our performance is laid there such that we are Christians not because of what we do. We are Christians because of what you have done. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have done your perfect work for each one of us as imperfect men. And we thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for the life that you give us through Jesus Christ. That truly we can be stayed upon you. We can, our hearts can be at, at peace when there's no explanation for it. When the world is chaotic, you can give us the peace that passes all understanding and the peace of God. And we ask for that this day, even as you teach and 
as you grow us in Christ through your servant Sandy. Bless him. May we have receptive ears and receptive hearts and willing hands and willing feet to go anywhere and do anything and be anything you want us to be such that we make a difference for your kingdom, for your name, and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Morning, gentlemen. Great to see you today. Glad to see the Grizzlies come back last night. That was a great comeback if you saw it on TV. Go Grizzlies. You end up in the playoffs yet. Guys, we are in Galatians chapter 5, and we've been studying how through Christ, if we trust in Christ, the amazing thing is we end up being the children of Abraham. And as such, we end up with a, a, an inheritance that was promised to him thousands of years ago. That's in Christ. We're sons of God, sons of Abraham. All the promises of God fall upon us through faith in Jesus Christ because we're engrafted in to the true Israel. That's what we've been seeing in the text. And when we got to the end of chapter 3, Paul kind of came to a crescendo. You're all sons of God uh, through faith in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to show in the early part of chapter 4 how we've then, as sons, received the rights of inheritance. When you get to the, the latter uh, part of chapter 4, you see that Paul's saying not to be in Christ is to be into slavery, which, as we've seen, was a great offense for any Jewish background person to be told that they were slaves. Because Jews apparently uh, happily forgot their slavery in Egypt. And they identified themselves themselves as sons of Abraham because they were physical uh, descendants of Abraham. And we've never known slavery, they said to Jesus earlier on in Israel's history. And Paul goes on to show how if they're not in Christ, they really are slaves. And he even showed them in the first part of chapter 4 if they are hanging on to the Old Testament ritual laws, they're hanging on to laws that are appropriate for a child being tutored. And a child being tutored has the same rights as a slave. It's only when you reach majority that you have the rights of being a free adult. And, of course, the right of inheritance comes later. So he was showing them that if they hold themselves under ritual laws, the theocratic laws of the Old Testament, uh, they're, they're acting like little children under tutelage, which is to act like a slave. And he goes on then, and we saw this in the, 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 the figurative uh, approach, the, the allegorical approach that he took at the end of chapter 4. He presses that point even further. And he says that, he says that those who follow the law are actually the children of Hagar, the slave woman 
of Abraham, not of Sarah. So those who are physical descendants of Sarah, if they stay with the ritual law, they're actually children of Hagar, and they're slave sons, not free sons. I mean, this is getting, then he, he presses it even further in this allegory, as you remember, and he says, if your hopes are set up with Mount Sinai and with the present city of Jerusalem, you are the children of Hagar, the slave woman. Wow. Okay, he finally pulled all the guns out. And he said, if you, if you follow the ritual ways of Judaism, what we today know as Judaism, you have basically cut yourself off from Abraham. And you've chosen to be out in the wilderness with the Ishmaelites, the children of Hagar. And then he said, you remember in chapter 4, that the city of Jerusalem that is above is our city. And that is a free city not a city of slavery. So, the real children of Abraham have their hearts set like Abraham did on the city whose builder and maker is God. And we're pilgrimaging through this wilderness to reach our new city, which is free because we're free citizens. And we are the citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem in pilgrimage through this broken world. That's the kind of analogy he drew. Now, as we move into chapter 5, he's going to make some very strong statements about the nature of freedom. And I don't know about you, but I kind of like freedom. <laughs> and I'd be willing to die for it. And some of you were willing to die for it in wars past, political freedom. And uh, freedom is built into our very system, and there's a reason for it, uh, into our political system. It's because it's built into our souls. And we'll see that as we look at chapter 5 and understand the very nature of freedom and how to work it out. Let's look at Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? What kind of persuasion does not come from the... uh, I'm sorry, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free. 
But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Amen. Well, I want us to notice three things about the text. And basically, it's the three paragraphs, well, not quite, uh, that you see in the, uh, in the NIV. The first thing is, in ver- the first part of verse 1, we must experience our freedom. Freedom is something we must experience. Well, it's uh, probably most of us saw the, the movie Braveheart. Uh, this really dramatic, interesting, uh, gory a powerful movie about William Wallace, the 13th century hero of Scotland uh, who fought for Scotland's independence. And uh, if you've been to Scotland and seen the place near Stirling Castle uh, where the Battle of Stirling was and get someone to tell you the story, you'll see how ingenious uh, old William Wallace was. Well, he wasn't that old. Actually, he, uh, when he fought that battle, he was, he was in his 20s. But uh, they defeated the, the British at Stirling and began to gain their independence. But finally, of course, at the age of 33, William Wallace was put to death by uh, King Edward I. Uh, and if you saw the movie, it had him drawn and quartered. And, and, of course, when you've got him drawn and quartered, then you, you tear his guts out and let him see his own guts before he dies. And it gets pretty gory at the end, as you know. And what is the last word that William Wallace screams out before he dies? Freedom! You know, Mel Gibson loved that role. He got to uh, scream out the word. And and it's true. Uh, With everything in him uh, and everything uh, outside of him, William Wallace would give all that he had for the simple concept and experience of freedom. And we don't know how valuable freedom is until we don't have it. And then we realize how precious it is. And Americans uh, have always valued freedom. We are very sentimental about our freedom. We get drawn into battles for other people's freedom. Even when our own just war theory might suggest otherwise, we can't help ourselves because uh, we believe so much in freedom. Uh, as George W. Bush said, freedom is not a, an American thing. It's a, a human thing. Uh, that's about as eloquent as George W. Bush gets. Um, but you could go back to uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt Uh, in his great speech about the four freedoms that sort of defined our big motive in World War II. And those uh, freedoms were the freedom of speech, to be able to say what you think in private and in public, Uh, the freedom of religion, to worship not only in private, uh, not only in underground churches, but to be able to worship above ground and in public, uh, whatever God you choose to worship in whatever way uh, you want to worship unless it impinges, impinges on the rights of others. And uh, the freedom from want and the freedom from fear. Those are the four great freedoms that Roosevelt preached. It's, it's in our very system, and it's very important to us. Uh, and when the Puritans came over here, if uh, I, I can't remember exactly where it is, but I remember... Uh, seeing in William Bradford's papers, the first governor of Massachusetts, 
that he gave at one point a speech in which there were several paragraphs that described the origin of political freedom. Because, you know, of course, these people were coming across the Atlantic Ocean to get away from religious persecution to experience one of Roosevelt, later as Roosevelt articulated, one of his four freedoms, the freedom to worship. And they came here because they were being persecuted. And uh, on the way over, Bradford gives this speech which lays the foundation for the uh, political freedom that was to be experienced in the colonies. And in that speech, he carefully shows how the political freedom that we Americans have since then, uh, these 450 or almost 500 years, learned to cherish. Uh, that freedom, or more, I'm sorry, more near 400 years, that freedom that we've learned to cherish is based upon, Bradford said, a spiritual freedom. And the point he was making is that you can't really make sense out of political freedom. You can't even defend it intellectually unless you show how it's rooted in the way human beings are actually made and redeemed. So that really political freedom, it seemed to me he was suggesting, is a consequence of redemption. That God has set us free from condemnation. And Bradford, of course, is a very astute Christian. And he's explaining how the freedom from condemnation in salvation in the gospel then leads us to the natural consequence of having political freedom. And his point was, you can't have political freedom without this. And I would just say, look at world history and give nations enough time. And if they abandon the gospel, you'll see eventually they're going to abandon, abandon any sense of how political freedom is to be worked out. So our yearning for political freedom, as William Wallace screamed it out in his last breath, uh, is an expression of the human longing uh, to be free in the ways that only the gospel can do it. Now, notice, first of all, in our experience of freedom, A, Christ purposed it. This was his objective. This is what he came to do, to set us free. You say, well, that must mean we were in slavery. Yes, now you're getting it, <laughs> that we were in slavery. Now, Let's look at a, a, a very nice expression of this in the back of your Bibles. Hold your f finger there in Galatians 5. But turn to the Westminster Confession of Faith on page uh, 2185. Make that 2183. Chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And look here, of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. Now what I'd like for you to, let, let's read this first paragraph and let's see what kind of liberty it is that we have in Christ as taught in the scriptures. Here's what the Westminster Divine says. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also 
in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind, all which were common also to believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law, which is what we're talking about today specifically, to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace, and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law didn't ordinarily partake of. So you see that there are a number of ways in which we are free. And if I could sort of summarize these, I would say, first of all, the confession of faith is saying that we are released from condemnation. We're free from condemnation. Condemnation from God. Because His wrath and condemnation fell completely onto Christ, our substitute, on the cross. And God is just. He does not demand payment twice for the same uh, crime. So he demands payment once, and Jesus paid it. And now we're free from payment. So we're set free from condemnation. Also, you'll notice that we're set free even from the bonds of this broken world. You can't hold us down. We're not going to be staying here in a broken world, in a sinful, adulterous generation forever. We're going to be set free one day. So we're even set free from this place to the new Jerusalem, the city that is free. Now... Everything is in bondage to sin. Everything around us, this whole ethos that we live in, this entire climate, the entire earth is broken and subjected to frustration. We're going to be liberated from that frustration. Notice the confession thirdly says we're liberated from the dominion of sin. Before we meet Christ savingly, we are bound as well as determined to sin. Everything that we do is suffused with sin. All we can do is sin. As Luther uh, made the point in his great debate with Erasmus, uh, our wills, our very wills, our volition is bound to sin. And we cannot set ourselves free. We're in iron chains to sin. So we're set free from the dominion of sin. We're set free, fourthly, from the fear of death. Now, you say... I'll let you know when that happens, preacher. <laughs> I mean, we all deal with it. We all are anxious about it. When that, when that wall of death gets closer and closer, you just find yourself having to reconcile yourself to it in a deeper level every stage along the way. And I find that after I got to be about 40, these thoughts would start crossing my mind. And now that I'm 59, they're crossing my mind more. And I find every year it crosses my mind more. The wall gets closer, and I'm dealing with it existentially more and more all the time. And I know as I get older, it'll be more and more so. And in one way, that's probably where some of the wisdom of old people comes from, is they see things more in the light of the very short time we have on earth. And they get wisdom that way. Teach us to number our days, says Moses, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So as we deal with death, even as a young man, if you'll deal with death, and don't just reconcile yourself to it like, okay, that's just the way it is. No, you deal with it biblically. You begin to see through the wall. You begin to see hope on the other side. And you see that God has burst a hole in the wall for you. And you go through the veil, through the wall, with Christ, into the other side. And you begin to be not just reconciled passively. You begin to be triumphantly, eagerly awaiting what's on the other side. 
and you begin preaching to your fears and you put your fears down because you believe in what's on the other side of the wall and that you're going on the other side of the wall. Now, that's the way that you're released from the fear of death. And then uh, notice, I guess this is the last thing I'll mention here about the confession of faith. Fifthly, you'll notice that we are liberated from the ceremonial law, that we've gone into a new testament, a new covenant, and that we are now free from what kept us as minors under tutelage, as Paul says in earlier in chapter 4. So rather than being treated like slaves, being minors under tutelage, with often it was a slave who was beating us to death to, to keep us in line, we're now free adults. So we've been released from the ceremonial law. Now all those things Christ intended to do. That's the reason he came. And you'll find this in several places in the scriptures. But let's notice B in our experience of freedom. Not only did Christ purpose it, but Christ accomplished it. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So Christ intended to do it, and by his, his work on earth, by his incarnation and his crucifixion and resurrection, he has actually done it. In Hebrews 2, for example, you get a wonderful statement to this effect. Uh, this is on page 1982. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.14, Since the children have flesh and blood, that would be us, we have flesh and blood, He, Christ, too, shared in their humanity so that by His death He might destroy Him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So you can see that by the very incarnation of Christ coming flesh and blood along with us and then laying his life on the cross, he has destroyed the fear. He has destroyed death itself for his brothers and sisters and therefore he has conquered the fear of death and hell for us. So Christ came to set us free. He's our great liberator. Now, in the, the Jewish mind, Moses was the great liberator. Moses was the one at 80 years of age he was out in the wilderness, minding his own business, tending to his sheep, but he listened to the voice of God, went back, suffered the possibility of death, in fact, the probability of death, facing Pharaoh to demand that the people of God be set free, and God gave him all kinds of miraculous powers to make his point. Pharaoh would off and on believe him. Pharaoh, of course, was under God's judgment already, but Moses then was used by God to take the people out in the wilderness even when they complained and moaned and groaned and murmured. That's about all they could do. Moses still stood faithfully to the word of God to liberate his people. Moses was the great liberator. If you, you look in American history, African Americans would see many people in our history who have been liberators, uh, African American liberators. And they are wonderful folks. You look, Of course, Martin Luther King would be one of the, the greatest uh, the liberator of his people who took on all the threats of violence to his own body in order to liberate his own people. Well, you know what kind of devotion we have to people who are liberators. If you look at uh, American history, those, those pilgrims who came over, they were in a sense liberators, weren't they? Of course, the, the uh, Native Americans didn't see it that way, but that's the way that a, a lot of Northern Europeans would see it. So we have great devotion to our liberators. Well, Jesus Christ is presented to you, brothers, again today as your liberator, your personal liberator. He took it upon himself. He came here 
from a place that was very nice and comfortable where he didn't have sin to deal with, nor sinners, and he came down to this broken world at the risk of his own life to set us free and to get us out of bondage. And he was successful, and it cost him his life. So our devotion to him is unspeakably exalted. So we must experience our freedom. We must realize what it is Christ has done for us. That's the reason we study the gospel, is to continue to remind ourselves the freedoms that he has given us and to live it out and to enjoy them. He says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So then, he says, secondly, when we get to verses 1b through 6, then guard your freedom. We must guard our freedom. He says, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What is this yoke of slavery? It's the ceremonial law which represents a performance-based or an insignia-based salvation. That is, you have to perform to a certain level and get a good grade or you have to have these marks that you belong to the family outwardly and conform to certain rituals and certain traditions in order to be accepted among the people of God. That is leading you to slavery, he's saying to them. So don't take that on. Gentlemen, I say to you, when Christ sets you free, don't accept a yoke of slavery. And some of you may have a very critical uh, board of directors, or you may have a very critical boss. You may have a critical wife who can make you feel guilty just like that. You need to learn how to apply the gospel so that you can hear those messages and you can respond to them peaceably and responsibly and intelligently and not lose your peace. What happens when you lose your peace is that you're beginning to believe the message that's being told you, the demeaning message or the enslaving message. And you put a big stiff arm up and you're kind and responsible in your responses and you're collected. Why? Because you're free. You know who you belong to and you know who you are and you don't believe those messages. And so I find it true every day. Men must guard their freedoms. Now, does that mean, no, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to listen to you. Does that mean you're argumentative or impossible to deal with? No, just the opposite. When you're internally secure in your freedom, you can listen to people and respond to them intelligently and give them a a response back. So I would say that this is a very important message for us. And I told you the story about uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was certainly a a free man as a preacher, and uh, he smoked cigars and one woman asked him if he could be a Christian and smoke cigars, and he said, yeah, moderation. She said, what's that? And he said, one at a time. You know? <laughs> he had a great sense of humor. Sometimes humor is very helpful, and if you're free, maybe you'll have a better humor. You know, you won't let, you won't let the little old lady who tells you you shouldn't be smoking cigars to, to ruin your day. You, ha- you have a humorous answer because you're free and you know it. Uh, one, one day a woman said to him, Mr. Spurgeon, I think there's entirely too much humor in your, in your sermons. He said, Madam, if you only knew what I was holding back. <laughs> All right. Stand firm. Guard your freedom. Don't take the yoke of the law. He says, don't be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, what is the solution for this yoke of slavery? This traditionalism or this performance-based religion or this performance-based view of who you are. 
You're okay if you make this much money. You're not okay if you don't make this. You're okay if your business is successful. You're not okay if it's not. You're okay if you've only been married once and never divorced. You're not okay if you have a divorce on your record. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And it is an absolute burden. It is a yoke of slavery to be enslaved to how well you're doing today. How do you get out of that? You take another yoke on. So I thought I was getting rid of the yoke. No, you're getting rid of the yoke of slavery. Let me tell you what the yoke of freedom is. The yoke of freedom is Jesus Christ. Jesus said to those who are damning themselves, he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened. And if you've been yoked with this performance-based religion, you are weary and you are burdened. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. How? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me and you will find rest for I'm gentle and humble in heart. So you take the yoke of Christ. It's, it's the replacement of the law, but it is enslavement to Christ. We're going to see you can't just be an independent particle floating around in the universe. You're going to have to be connected somewhere. You cannot be independent. Let me tell you why. You didn't make yourself. You can't sustain yourself in this universe. And you ain't getting out alive unless somebody takes you out with him. You're completely dependent. So you are not, American men, independent. You are very dependent. And you're going to choose upon whom you're going to be dependent. And most people choose the yoke of slavery. And Jesus says, I've got another yoke for you. Depend upon me. Take my yoke. Be enslaved to me, and you'll be free from this other stuff. But if you're enslaved to that stuff, you're going to be free from me. And that's the point the, the apostle is making. Look what he says in A. Leave the life of legalism. So if you're going to guard your freedom, the first thing you've got to do is abandon what's not working for you. The self-condemnation and the despair and the misery and the depression that goes with a guilt-based approach to serving God. He says... First of all, in verse 2, otherwise Christ is of no value to us. If you don't leave legalism, Christ has no value for you. He says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Now, if we take that verse out of context, <laughs> we've got a lot of guys here who are in trouble, I think. I mean, I've heard a lot of y'all are circumcised. I don't know what's wrong here, but he doesn't mean that if you've been circumcised, Christ doesn't mean anything to you. What he means is, if you depend upon your circumcision as your mark of being a child of God, which is what the Jews did. That was the meaning of their circumcision. Ours means nothing. But in those days, it did. And he's saying, if you pick something out that you're depending upon for your favor with God, and that's it, you have lost any value in Christ. So Christ is of no value unless you leave legalism. Number two, Otherwise, we are obligated to perfect obedience. He says, look, if you pick one thing that you think is the standard, wrong. You pick one thing that's the standard, you have to pick the entire law. Uh, leave your finger there in Galatians and, and look with me, for example, at James chapter 2. And this will be on page 2008. James, of course, uh, who was, I guess you could call him the bishop of Jerusalem. He was Jesus' half-brother and a, an outstanding leader among the apostles. He says in verse 8 
James 2, 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbors yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And look at his reasoning here, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Wow. Now, James was an expert on the law. And he's saying, the problem with the law is, if you break any law, you've broken all of it. I mean, take an example uh, with David and Bathsheba. Famous sin. The sin of adultery. Look how it's, it's related to every other commandment. He coveted Bathsheba. It's okay. Broke the tenth commandment. Uh, he uh, stole from Uriah the Hittite, her husband. So he's broken the eighth commandment. I mean, you can go on and on. Uh, he he uh, murdered Uriah the Hittite to cover his tracks. Broke the sixth commandment. I mean, <laughs> you end up breaking one commandment, you break them all. So now if you're going to pick circumcision or your uh, not drinking or your faithfulness to your wife, or anything you pick. That's what really defines me as a Christian. I'm a man of integrity. You pick that? Okay. How's your hypocrisy doing lately? I mean, you know, you, if you break one, you break them all. So Paul is saying, don't go down that track. Uh, it, it doesn't work. You're going to get yourself in deep weeds real fast. And that's the reason if you look back in Galatians 3, verse 10, Paul says something similar. He says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So if you're going to go the law way, you got the whole book that's yours. Hello, how you doing? All right. Number three, otherwise we fall away from grace. So you can't have Christ if you're going to be on a performance-based approach. And you can't have grace. He says, you who are trying to be justified by law, verse 4, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, some folks will take this verse out of context, just like, you know, in a silly way I said, if you take verse 2 out of context, that means no circumcised person could be a Christian. Well, some people will take verse 4 out of context and say, see, you can't fall away from grace. <laughs> well, Paul is not talking theologically about whether a person who has been born again can be unborn again. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a person who subscribed to a theological system of grace and abandons that and goes over here to a theological system of works. He said, you've abandoned grace. You've, you, you've alienated yourself from Christ and you've fallen away from grace because the system of grace is up here and you've fallen down here and gone back to slavery into a system of thinking that is works-based. That's what he's talking about. So if you ever see this verse quoted as one that suggests that someone can fall away from a state of salvation, they've taken the, the verse out of context. We'll talk about that some other day. But he's saying here, look what you've done to yourself. You've listened to these works-based Judaizers. You've tried to combine what they're saying with what the gospel is saying because you're nice. You want to be sure that you don't offend anybody. So we'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We'll just all mix it up uh, into some sort of American form of Christianity. We'll just make everybody happy and include everybody. Look what you've done. You've alienated yourself from Christ and you've fallen away from the gospel, the teaching of grace. You have to be on your guard, gentlemen. And what happens is 
Every other system of thinking is a works-based system of thinking, and every other system of thinking constantly wants to co-opt the gospel into its system of works-based religion, every one of them. And we'll see that that even gets stronger as Paul talks about it later on. So first of all, leave the life of legalism. Secondly, B, verses 5 and 6, live the life of faith. We say, how do I do that? Well, first of all, eagerly await the end. In verse 5, he says, we eagerly, but by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Now, this is a very interesting way of talking about righteousness. We've seen that the word righteousness and justification are the same in Greek, dikaio. And he's saying, we, we know, of course, that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have his full righteousness imputed to us. That's the big argument in chapter 2, verses 15, 16. That's the big thesis that's in Galatians, that we get it in total. Why would we need circumcision or Sabbath-keeping or dietary laws? Why do we need to add anything when you've already got complete righteousness? If you need something else, you don't understand Christ. You know, you couldn't have Christ because you don't understand him. You think you need something else. So he says that uh, we, we receive that full righteousness when we trust in Christ. Now, notice this. We've received our righteousness for our standing, our record before God, but we're still struggling with performing in righteousness, living the righteous life. So we're eagerly awaiting the day when righteousness will not only be our record before God, but it will actually be our experience. There's actually a sort of another moment of justification which is coming. In fact, there are several moments with justification. I think we've seen this. You were justified from all eternity. Because in God's mind, he had already justified you. You were justified when Christ died on the cross because he died for his brothers and sisters and he paid the price right there and you were justified. You were justified when you believed in Jesus Christ in 2000 or 2000 or 1900, whatever it was. So there's a third moment of justification. When you believed, you were justified. Then there's a fourth moment of justification and that is when you go before the throne of God, you are accounted righteous. That's what Paul is talking about here. So our justification is not only here in space and time, not only when Christ died on the cross, not only when you believe, there's a moment of grand justification of righteousness at the throne of God. So we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Now hope here doesn't mean, oh, I sure hope that works out. <laughs> no, it's a sure and certain hope. That's the hope of the Bible. We hope for Christ. That means we believe in Christ's second coming. We're longing for it with eager anticipation. That's biblical hope. This built on certainties, not wishful thinking. So he's saying this is what we hope for. This is what we long for. This is what we're looking for is when our, our selves, our motives, our deeds, our words, everything is righteous. And he says that's the way we live by faith. And we're longing for it. That's part of the Christian experience. Secondly, we express our faith in love. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So here's what matters, he says. What matters is not what you're doing to try to justify yourself. It's not what you're doing to try to make yourself look better before God or other people. Here's what matters. What matters is what comes out of you 
as a result of trusting in the complete righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what matters. So when you put your trust in Christ for your record before God, your acceptance before God, then what is beautiful to Him is what flows out of yourself as a result of it. And that is your faith expressing itself through love. And the apostle is saying here, as he does in 1 Corinthians 13 and other places, this is the big deal in living this life. It is loving other people because you've been loved by Jesus Christ. And he has set your heart at peace. He set your heart at liberty. You're no longer scrambling around trying to figure out how you can image manage before God. You're at peace. You're at rest. And then out of that life, you're willing to love other people with your speech, your deeds, and even the intentions of your heart. Now, notice that he says then you've got to leave legalism and live the life of faith. But see, verses 7 through 12, you've got to stay on course. Stay the course. He says you were running a good race. I saw you on this race. You were articulating the gospel. You said you believed it, and you were starting to live like it. What happened to you? He says, here's what you need to do when you get off course. Number one, recognize the source of legalism. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? What kind, uh, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. The one who calls you calls you to freedom, as we see later in chapter 5. So the one who called you is not talking to you about that rubbish. The one who called you is not giving you self-condemnation. The one who called you is not making you think you've got to perform up to a certain level before God will accept you. That's not the voice of God. So who is this? Well, there's only one answer. It's coming from below. And it's the devil's number one technique. And the devil loves to use religion in particular to get human beings off track, to be enslaved to him again. And he doesn't care whether it's devil worship or, or whether it's false worship. Because ultimately, all false worship is devil worship. Because you're enslaved to one or the other, either Christ or him. And the devil wants you as his slaves. So he's saying, what's the source of this? Where did this come from? Who is inspiring these Judaizers? We know the answer to that. Secondly, recognize the power of legalism. He says in verse 9, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I tell you what, it's amazing how powerful a performance rate-based view of life is. It's amazing how powerful legalism is. Watch it in your life. You let it in one little place, it'll take over the whole being. You let it in one little Sunday school class in your church, and before long your whole church is eaten up with it. It's amazing how contagious legalism is. Condemnation, judging other people, censoring other people based on traditions or values that are not biblically-based values. It's amazing how that can happen. And then he says, recognize the consequences of legalism. He says it's going to lead to those people's destruction. And especially for those who are messengers of a foreign gospel, as we've already seen, he says, may they be accursed in chapter 1. Here he says, may they cut their jewels off. I mean, here, here's the irony of this. He said, these people are telling you to be circumcised. Here's what I'd like for them to do. Cut the whole thing off. And go preach wherever you want to. <laughs> That's what he's saying to them. Now, there were, there were eunuchs. There were priests in pagan temples who made themselves eunuchs out of their devotion to their false gods who didn't even exist. That's how destructive those gods are. It's amazing what you can do to yourself 
when you imagine a false god. And Paul says, why don't they just act like the pagan priests? Just go ahead and emasculate yourself like they do. Uh, and why don't you just be totally devoted to your way of religion? Why don't you just cut it all off? Uh, I mean, you think Paul's upset? Of course he is. Uh, because he, he sees, number one, that men are being thrown into bondage through religious uh, virtuoso uh, heresies and that it's getting a grip on their hearts and they're going to be destroyed over it. And if there's one thing Paul wants to do with the men that he loves is get them home safely. And this was a tremendous threat to their security. And number two, and this is what really motivates him, only the gospel exalts God as he is. That's the reason ultimate. You want to know the highest ultimate reason for the gospel is for the glory of God. And I don't understand it. I would think that God would have had enough glory just by showing himself to be just and destroy all the sinners. That's probably how I'd have done it if I wanted to exalt myself. But God exalts his whole being, not just his holiness, but his grace and kindness through the gospel. And when the gospel is threatened, the very glory of God in his being is being threatened. And Paul wants the glory of God to spread over the entire universe. And when something opposes that, you get everything in within the, the apostle opposing it. And so it should be with us as well. Recognize the consequences of legalism. Now lastly, let's turn to verses 12 through 15. And here you see the real ironic twist of the gospel. And it's this. Whatever service anybody wanted you to perform, whatever religious devotion they wanted you to experience through their works-based religion, the irony is the gospel of freedom will motivate you to more service and more devotion. In fact, the gospel of freedom will enslave you to serve each other like nothing else in the world ever will. That's what the apostle is saying. He's saying, not only do these works-based religions not get you home safely, they don't even make you effective here. And this is contrary to the way most men think. They think if there's not some guilt and fear mixed in there, then it's not going to motivate people. And that's what we do in our businesses. If you do this, we'll pay you this. If you perform over here, you get this incentive. If you do really well, knock it out of the park, we might make you manager. I mean... There are all kinds of incentives. You'll get more of the worldly goods if you do this. And people come from the marketplace and they think, well, religion's not going to work unless you do the same thing. And Paul says, au contraire, hop along. It's just the opposite of what you think. If you really want people to serve each other like slaves, let them enjoy the fullness of the freedom of the gospel, and it's the only way. Look how he says it. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but... Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. He says we must use our freedom, first of all, not for carnal purposes. You're not set free so that you can just sin more knowing that you're forgiven your sins. And, of course, we know in Romans 6, Paul addresses this logical objection. And the only way you know if you understand the gospel truly is if this objection comes back to you. If you understand the gospel, it will provoke this objection. Well, if the gospel is free, I don't have to do anything to earn it, and I can't lose it. Hey, let's have a party. <laughs> that's, that's the natural, logical objection. That's if you understand the gospel, it will produce that. And that's what happened in Romans 6. Paul's explanation of the gospel in Romans 1 through 5 produced that. 
So he gives an answer. You're saying, should we sin more and let grace abound all the more? Which we'll, you know, uh, we like to sin. God likes to forgive. Got a good arrangement here. I'll keep sinning. He'll keep forgiving. He'll get exalted by forgiving all my sins. This is going to be fun. And Paul says, look, you missed it, you idiot. <laughs> he said, not only, basically, and this is the Wilson translation in Romans 6, he's saying, you've not only been justified legally and completely accepted by God already, regardless of your performance. But look, gentlemen, something else has happened. Your nature has changed. You've been born again. So you just ask a stupid question. You're asking a question as one who hates sin. So how could you ask a question like that if you hate sin? Your nature got changed. So you don't want to. Now, there's, we're, we know that we have this battle within ourselves. You've got a little dog and a big dog. It depends on which one you feed, right? So we know there's a battle going on, but fundamentally... Your nature has been changed. So God didn't take any chances. He changed your appetites. If you're walking with Him, your appetites changed. And Paul says, you know, if you keep your mind in the things of the Spirit, of course, you're going to be walking with God. So what you find is in Romans 6, you've got a new nature and a new master. So you left the master, the devil himself, and the yoke of the burden of the law, and you now you have the master of Christ. And grace is a dominion. It's a kingdom. It's powerful. We're under the rule of freedom. We're under the rule of grace. We're under the rule of Christ. And he has defeated the powers that were enslaving us before. So it's a, it's a very militaristic picture. New nature, new master. He says that's the reason that we do not use our freedom for carnal, selfish purposes. Secondly, we use it for service. Verses 13 B through 15. Rather, serve one another in love. Now, let me say, this word serve is a very important word. There are a couple of words you can use for serve. Here's the one Paul uses. It's the word for slave. This is what makes it so ironic. He says, don't use your freedom for carnal purposes. Use your freedom for slavery. Enslave yourselves to one another. Now you know you're free. Now there's the irony of the gospel. That we do it because we love Christ. We love one another because He loved us. We enslave ourselves to one another because He enslaved Himself to us. He who is rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. And we're imitating Him because we love Him. We adore Him. We want to be like Him. We're imitating Him. That's what the apostle is saying. Serve, be enslaved to one another. And why? Well, number one, verse 14, love fulfills the law. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbors yourself. The whole second table of the commandments, which is about loving your neighbor. Here it is. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Is that not one of the most fundamental things that comes out of your life of the gospel is that you now look at people differently. You now... Put yourself in their skin. You now sympathize with them. You now think of things from their perspective. You now try to figure out, you know, I'm, I've been making, you say to yourself, I've been making six figures for many, many years. I, I've forgotten what it's like to live at $30,000 a year. Well, get your mind into living for $30,000 a year because a lot of people around here do. And they need your sympathy. And they need to understand that when they go out to lunch, you should pay for lunch. <laughs> I mean, think about other people. 
when someone's been widowed, would you think about what that means? It's terrible, it's horrible, it's lonely, it's dark, it's depressing, it's very difficult. Would you just try to put yourself in their shoes and think, what do they need from me? That's what happens when you've been liberated from the bondage of performance because why? You've stopped thinking about yourself. And the problem with a performance-based approach to your work or your marriage or your religion is you're thinking about yourself. When you're liberated, now you're free to think about other people for the first time. So remember, this is the summary of the law. Love one another as you would love yourself. Lastly, secondly, lack of love leads to destruction. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. And I just say to you, when you get into a legalistic environment, whether it's in your home, in your business, in your neighborhood, in your civic club, or in your church, you just look and it's a very ugly place to be because in people's minds as well as in their speech, all they're doing is judging each other. You're judging yourself. That's the biggest problem. You're condemning yourself. But when you do that, I guarantee you, you're judging other people and you'll eat them up and devour them. You can't build someone up if you don't love them. You can't learn the gospel if you're not devoted to love. And you can't change the world as a transforming agent without the love of Christ that can only be expressed when you've received that love as your liberator setting you free from everything that would condemn you and hold you back from eternal glory. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the massive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the results of setting us free from the bondage of these things, death itself, from the bondage of corruption, and from the bondage of condemnation, the bondage of fear, the bondage of loneliness, the bondage of sin itself. Thank you for setting us free. Enable us, Lord, today to use our freedom to serve other people in the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.